Well, um, all right, folks. Looks like we've got a couple people in here, and maybe just like 30 seconds more. Sarah is tweeting. She's really putting on the charm. That's the way we get them in here, right, Sarah? Where's Sarah? Oh, there you go. In case you guys missed, um, <clears throat> in case you guys missed Sarah's tweet, it's "Get in here, losers." So, yes, the um, the honey method, right there. That's uh... yeah. That 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 sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> of whatever work. You know your audience, Sarah. You know your followers. You know. Do what you gotta do. All right. Um I think we're gonna be just a couple other people. We're waiting on Professor Dilly, so Lord Dilly um is gonna be joining as one of the speakers. And I think Dan Olson, if I understood his last message to me, is actually going to be able to join and talk crypto after all. So for folks who are dropping in, we um, uh, we had hoped to make this session kind of partly about the speech employed in online communities related to conspiracy theories and then also crypto world. And uh, we still want to touch on both of those. Um, but the folks we had... <clears throat> um lined up to talk about the crypto side weren't able to make it so we're just going to go back to the original plan which i'm i'm great with but then um dan olson actually messaged back kind of in the last half hour and he said well i i could get in and, and talk crypto so dan i'm not seeing you here but if you're on um request the mic and we'd be glad to have you in there and i'll do introductions for our speakers in in just a sec so let's get rolling Welcome, everyone. Welcome, welcome to um, Prism Misinfo Meetup number seven. Number seven. Um, <clears throat> so what's Prism? We're an anti-misinformation media company. We make products that Americans and others um, make uh, smarter at understanding the news as they consume the news. That's kind of the meta part of it. Uh, we're not a big outfit, but we have big aims, for example, um, doing events like this one is sort of a stretch beyond the initial, well, we have a newsletter and we've got some ideas for other similar things. And we thought, why don't we try this audio thing? And uh, I just love it. So we, we continue doing it. And um, I think they're valuable and each time um, seems better and better. So uh, we also have an affiliate support group for the loved ones of misinformation victims. That's over on Facebook. I'm an admin for it. So if you're interested in that, if you've got a loved one who's in, you know, in the rabbit hole, as it were, please DM me and I'd be happy to point you the way to that. All of which is to say, I'm Kevin, editor of Prism Meta News and your host this evening. If you're new to Spaces, just really quickly, um, as a host, I can have up to, I can have up to like seven or eight speakers, I think, activated at a time. It might be as high as 10. So if there are slots, we will try and honor requests to turn on microphone and contribute. Uh, that said, we've got some folks lined up who are uh, who know that they're speaking and uh, are on the hook. So um, if you have a question or uh, comment, please try to limit it to about 20 or 30 seconds so that we can get through a few of them. But I would like to try and get folks in for that. So um, there's a little request mic button if you are interested in doing that. I'm also checking 
my DMs peri periodically throughout. Um, if you're more comfortable sending a question or a comment that way, I may be able to relay something. I, I make no guarantees with that because it gets a, a little hectic, but um, if I see it, I may be able to relay something that way um, or try and tweet something at us. Uh, my notifications are glitchy, but they still kind of work during meetups. Um, so yeah, meetups is in line with one of PRISM's aims, which is to bring together all the different anti-misinformation folks who are working different things, Medi media literacy education, all the way to OSINT and everything in between. These are, these meetups are, I think an important venue for that kind of interaction. Um, and we've used previous ones just to chat about the news. And we've talked about specific things like social media and news consumption, um, resilience in the disinformation researcher, that was fascinating. And uh, the last one was um, earlier this month, and we talked about issues in reporting on misinformation, as in like professional reporters for a news organization and how they approach that. So uh, that's kind of where we come with these. I do hope you get something out of it. I hope you say nice things afterwards and all that. Um, we are recording the session, so please be advised that that's happening. And also we'll be posting it just as soon as we can figure out to do that. Kudos to Steph. Thank you, Steph, for making that happen. And um, we'll make sure that gets out to everybody just, just as soon as possible. So um, follow Prism on Twitter if you aren't already. That's how you'll know when, the, when our newsletter comes out. But since you're here listening, more important is when are we going to do Misinfo meetups? If you like this kind of thing, uh, we don't do them on a regular schedule. So please, um, just follow and you know we we tend to blast it out a couple times in the week before one happens so um that's a good way to stay in the loop um speaking of the newsletter we have a weekly it's called this week in misinformation it's just all the things going on in misinformation a lot of those professional journalists i talked about i draw from folks that um folks in this chat actually here who who are in the telegram channels and um, monitoring in different places who uh, tweet out their findings and report report out in different ways. We try to pull all that together and uh, at least have links to everything. And then for the top three three stories, usually we'll, we'll do a summary of that. So like a quick five minute read at the top and it'll be just, here's kind of bang, 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 the three, narr the three large narratives happening this week that relate to misinformation and, and it weaves together a lot of the a lot of the things from um, from a multitude of sources. Um, so that comes out on Thursday nights and um, hope you can um, check that out and sign up if you're interested. All right, on to the discussion. Before we do that, Professor Dilly, hi, I see you're on. If you can request Mike, or there may be a way I can request you so we get you on because we're about to introduce folks. And, uh, oh, and Dan, I see you're on there as well. Let me, let me put you on there, I'm gonna, I'm gonna invite you guys to speak and then uh, I will do the introductions. Okay, uh, so <clears throat> language. Language is a fundamental technology for humans. Without it, we'd be unable to get a thought from one person's mind to another person's consciousness. Um, everyone would have to come up with ideas independently and cooperation and collaboration would be impossible. So we use language in all kinds of creative ways and just look at Twitter, it's all there, right? So today we wanted to look at the language of misinformation, conspiracy theory communities, and the language of crypto. And um, so these are 
these are humans in communities. They mostly interact online, but there are humans in these communities. They have all kinds of specific things that they say to themselves and modes of communicating um, without group people as well that are different from the in-group. So this meetup is really to, to look at these two specific communities and um, kind of to take an example of that, you know, the, the language of conspiracy theory uh, world, for example, is the Anons talk quite differently than do the Normies. We initially had the session called like Normies and Anons, the linguistic divide um, <clears throat> until I got a little enamored of, <clears throat> excuse me, until I got a little enamored of the um, shibboleths. <laughs> so we tried that out instead. Um, so that's the idea. We're going to kind of explore this. Um, I think there's some parallels between the conspiracy theory side and the cryptosphere. I don't mean to say that they're the same at all, but certainly there are some similarities and we wanted to pull some of that as well. So um, hopefully we can get into that, even if it's not at too deep a level. So um, yeah, wanted to start with this meetup to um, really address some of these misinformation aspects, including language that are an enormous part of the internet. The folks we have today are serious observers of the crypto and conspiracy world. And we are thankful for, I should say, crypto skeptic and conspiracy theory watcher world. Um, and we thank them for joining. So <clears throat> first we've got uh, Professor Laura Dilly. She is a professor of speech and language, cognitive neuroscience and disinformation and QAnon at Michigan State University. Um, Dapper Gander, who is a QAnon understander par excellence, basically, what would we do without him? Um, we've also got Sarah Aniano, who um, at Coolface Jane, she does some tremendous um, research and work on what's happening, especially lately with the um, convoy in Canada. And, oops, yes, and Dan Olson. So I was just about to introduce you, Dan. Hi. Um, Dan is at Foldable Human, which is very cool. And actually, every time I look at it, I think it says at Formidable Human. <laughs> but uh, Dan's had a busy week. He made a YouTube video on his channel where he does these detailed video essays on all kinds of topics. And he worked on one for a long time called Line Goes Up, The Problem with NFTs. It went viral. It's now got 5 million views. And um, he was profiled in a Vice interview this last week, so it's been um, it's pretty it's been pretty busy for him. So I'm really thankful that he can join and um, <clears throat> and uh, hopefully can contribute on some of these crypto questions where the rest of us are a little a little thinner on. So thanks to everybody and shout out to others on the call again if if you're there and uh, you would like to participate, please put in a mic request and I will deal with those as I can in um, in the order that we receive them. Okay, jumping in. Discussion questions. I'm just going to say this, and then whoever wants to answer can answer. In the communities that you follow, how would you describe the functions of language? What are the jobs to be done by language? And we'll get into like speci more specific examples later, but just kind of at an abstract level. Um, how does language function in that community? Well, uh, in the QAnon sphere, um, language plays a, a obviously a very important role as it's all uh, 
an online movement. Um, so communicating online is all they do. It's it's the method by which uh, Q's prophecies came out and are interpreted and are spread. Um, but I think one of the interesting things about QAnon's language is when I was sitting down uh, during this past week sort of prepping for tonight, it was interesting to note how much of what we think of as being QAnon vocabulary isn't really QAnon vocabulary. It's Chanboard vocabulary, a lot of it. Um, and QAnon's become famous for using it. Um, but a tremendous amount of the stuff that they say to one another to signal their in-group status and their shared beliefs and to try to build their community doesn't really come from them. Um, which, and and until I was really making lists, I wasn't really, I hadn't, it was one of those things that you, you know, you know something, but until you say it out loud, it doesn't really click. Um, but everything from, you know, them, uh, their bakers and their breads and, and whatever, I mean, that's in calling one another friend and saying it's happening with bees or, or all of that, that's all much older Chan speak, um, saying Keck, uh, they've adopted it all. And I think the reason it's become so associated with them is because suddenly a huge population of people who aren't internet people, um, you know, when it spread onto Facebook, when boomers got involved and other groups started sort of getting in, in, absorbed by QAnon, suddenly, they were expected to sort of use this same language too, uh, which is how I think it wound up being so strongly associated with QAnon. Um, the other aspect of QAnon's language, which is much more unique to them, are not so much vocabulary words that they pepper into their conversations, but the importance of their catchphrases, uh, the importance of these little pithy things that Q has said from time to time that turn into these mini prophecies. I mean, Q says, watch the water and never explains what that means. But it has allowed for years, it has allowed uh, followers to see a picture in the news of some political leader with a bottle of Dasani in front of them and they get this immediate endorphin rush and they say, oh, watch the water, watch the water. This is important. Um, but that makes it, that's not, <laughs> that's a function of language, but not a function of their vocabulary. They don't use watch the water to mean anything. It's simply a shorthand that allows them to sense Q's presence in everyday events. Um, oh. Yeah, I'd seen Watch the Water. I didn't I, I didn't know that's how it was used. That's really interesting. I mean, on that particular note, like talking about Q, um, they have a I extremely incisive bit of language that they use, which is think mirror, which effectively gives them carte blanche philosophically to uh, adapt their beliefs to literally anything that is convenient <laughs> that there is no thing that can happen in reality that can actually upset them because all things are simultaneously true until reality actually happens 
Think Mirror is so much fun, and you're right. It, and it can be deployed in the same way that a fourth grader uses. It's opposite day, you know, just kind of like something happened and, oh, well, you know, on the face of it, that seems bad for our belief system. But if you just say, think mirror, it, like magic, you know, it sort of fixes it. Um, well, similar as things mirror. like... Go ahead. So I was just going to say, as, as QAnon has also dipped into numerology at more and more now with the emergence of groups like Negative 48, uh, Think Mirror takes on a whole other role there where it literally doubled the amount of variables that they can use to turn a timestamp on a tweet into a drop number or turn a date into a, another prophecy. So, so not just a reversal of reality, but they often use it simply in their own decodes to say, well, this didn't produce any results, but if I flip the numbers around, it produces good results, and therefore I will, and I will say I am thinking mirror. <laughs> You're doing the thing. Disinformation is necessary is another one, right? This is like, it's linguistic magic. You can just kind of, whenever something happens and um, it seems to produce a lot of cognitive dissonance, you're going to see that people kind of throw it out and say, well, Q said disinformation is necessary. So this must be that right. Even, um, you without any reason for thinking you knew what Q meant to begin with, right. It can kind of mean whatever you want it to mean. Yeah. A lot of these, uh, terms, um, are what I've heard is called as a thought terminating cliche. Like you just say the term and now that's the end of the argument. That's the end of the discussion. Like, well, why did this thing go the way it went? It was supposed to go the other way. Then the other person just, just says, think mirror. And now the conversation is over. We don't need to stress out about it because we just have to think mirror or this information is necessary. Just just calm down and relax, buddy. Don't, don't hurt your little brain getting too, getting too worked up over it. It's easy. Just relax. That's true. That's especially good for like... Um... Pepe lives, right? Who's so comfy all the time and just wants everybody to be comfy. You know, these are great concepts for making people comfy. <laughs> um, because they're so they're so flexible, right? Don't be worried. Trust the plan. Trust the plan. Poker, sorry, I didn't even introduce you. Poker, uh, number one authority, I think, maybe in the world on, uh, you know, how many times something's going to happen and nothing ever does. Um, it's just delightful. I really, I don't know how many people in that world are following you on, on Twitter, but I hope you're getting through to some of them. <laughs> it just seems really clear when you take a step away from it and look at it kind of uh, the way that you do, um, that these prophecies, you know, come out and they just, they never, they never work out, right? I'm just going to jump in and, and say uh, hello, everybody. Uh, I am pleased to be here with uh, so many esteemed speakers and researchers in the, the QAnon world. Uh, my first foray into the spaces, uh, podcasting uh, space. And I wanted to just offer briefly an academic perspective on, uh, on language and communication and how I think we can start to think about some of the issues relative to QAnon. So I want to point out three things. First of all, um, what what we can say is, first of all, language is a, a way of communicating meaning in some community in a conventionalized way. So communicating meaning, number one. Second, language is a way of signaling group identification. 
the way you talk, the way you relate to others, the words that you use, the mannerisms that you use when you speak, those things convey uh, identity. And, and third, language is a way of influencing thought. And I think all three of these basic tenets that come from, from, from the academic world and, and from uh, linguistics and cognitive science are important as we start to unpack why QAnon is dangerous and where it may be going. Yeah, that's great. And uh, everybody, if, you, if you're interested in a really nice college level treatment of uh, the language that's used in some of the development of QAnon over the years, uh, Professor Dilly has a great YouTube video up, a talk that she gave recently that I'll strongly recommend. Thank you. Okay, um, I wanna ask about what's changed. So we've talked about the functions of language in these communities. That was a really nice overview, I think, to kind of end on there. Um, um, actually, oh. I'm, I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt, but I really, wanted, I really wanted to hear our one and only crypto guy talk a little bit about the functions of language in crypto, assuming he has anything new to say, just because like, we have a lot of QAnon people here and we've heard from a lot of us, but crypto world is foreign, at least to me. So if you're familiar with QAnon um, and the way the QAnon language has evolved, like, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that we got the over, you know, the, uh, the, the dive into the fact that so much of QAnon vocabulary and uh, grammar is emergent out of Chan speak, uh, then the, the underlying logic of a lot of crypto stuff isn't really that different or is not going to feel that foreign because it has similar roots like there's a lot of chan culture in crypto vocabulary more of it is reddit but like reddit vocabulary is so aggressively uh influenced by by chan language as well um so like moving from in search of a flat earth into researching crypto was was fairly seamless from a linguistic uh, standpoint it's utilized in much the same way uh there's a ton of vocabulary overlap um and most of their sort of non-chan rooted stuff uh is in turn just borrowed from like they're all just loan words from finance industry uh so it's like you 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 talk like a channer but then you add like bullish and bearish into it and that gives you crypto that's fascinating did you do a video on flat earth yeah yeah i did a video on flat earth and QAnon in uh in 2020 and it was it was so 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 exceptionally good you should watch in search of a flat earth the reveal midway through is great and also you seem to have somehow turned this video into an excuse to go to the most beautiful lake i've ever laid eyes on so good work there <laughs> look at that changing lives over the internet i love it okay um, i just want to say, uh, if i may actually yep. go ahead uh, very glad to have uh, somebody here that knows the crypto world because i uh, you know one of the really uh uh unique things that I, I've, I can bring for my part uh, uh, not, it, to this conversation is not only um, the, the academic perspective on speech and language and cognitive science, um, but uh, the, my foray into QAnon at all um, started with uh, seeing all this propaganda coming out on Twitter. And um, I am a, kind of a late uh, entr entrance into the 
the QAnon disinformation, misinformation research space uh, in that I got started in early 2020 when uh, you know QAnon was really ramping up online. And I was able to uh, watch uh, QAnon develop and, and see so much uh, you know, disinformation coming out, misinformation, disinformation. I think that we need to bookmark that, that term as something to come back to. But I ended up uh, using social network, social media network analysis to pull Twitter accounts that were spewing, just spewing QAnon propaganda, and also pulled in accounts uh, in uh, in the well. Let me let me say that when I pulled that propaganda, one of the things that was really remarkable was how much crypto was talked about, and I think that um, uh, this you know raises some questions about why why is crypto of such interest in in the um, in the online messaging this is a you know i can i can ask and tentatively offer um a hype an answer that's based on the data um you know there there are there's a distinction between misinformation in general uh which is you know just information that is spread passively um, or by individuals. When you talk about disinformation, you're talking about agency. You're talking about um, an, an intent, a motive to disinform, to confuse, to deceive. Um, so what, uh, what I found with the Twitter data was clear evidence of digital astroturfing, which is uh, the use of digital tools to convey a false sense of grassroots political activity. Um, that coupled with the huge amount of crypto discussion, um, you know, leads to kind of a, 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 an interesting place in this discussion around the potential that some of this, this is in fact disinformation deliberately being spread on social media toward an accelerationist agenda. And I would love to hear any of the other speakers take on that? Well, I would say that within the disinformation space uh, that QAnon sort of emerged from, there are older conspiracy theories that are all financial. Um, and so one thing that I have really noticed is one of the reasons I think that crypto has become very successful in spreading into this community is because this community already fell for the Iraqi dinar revaluation scam. It's already fallen for Trump coins. It's already fallen for Nasara or Gasara, this idea that there's going to be a global currency reset that's going to somehow make everyone a, a multimillionaire. Um, and once everyone is a multimillionaire, that will, that will be a grand ascension of humanity because we won't have to be focused on working and then we'll have free energy and flying cars and that's when the galactic alliance will come and say now humanity is worthy to take its place in the universe so there were there were already these essentially get rich quick schemes um which is of course, how crypto is marketed to these communities, as you know, uh, as Dan has rightly pointed out, the the focus being you got to get in now 
because this is where it's going and you're a fool to not get in now uh, because then you're going to be rich. We're all, we're all going to make it. Um, and so that is sort of, I think, the bridge between where these believers' minds were at when they first heard about crypto. They were already thinking about this promised future of uh, real abundance and wealth that was going to come to them for simply being in the know and having the secret knowledge that if they buy 50 million Iraqi dinar now, when Trump makes the Iraqi dinar worth $100, you will be a quadrillionaire. So that was already there for to be exploited by people who wanted to get even more people into crypto for their own sort of grand pump and dump scheme. Yeah, there's a very basic like anthropological continuity in play like that you know, like it, the moment that you start thinking about Q and crypto on terms of human lifespans and it's like, oh, it's not that like these people are necessary. Like a lot of the a lot of the followers are like predisposed and susceptible because of these like foundational myths that they've already bought into in other forms. But it, among the thought leader class, it's like, oh, it's literally the same people. It's like, oh, it's it's just David Icke again. Like you 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 flip a rock over and he's just there. You know, it's Mencius Moldbug. It's, you know, a bunch of gold bugs from the who have been doing this since the 80s who just like show up uh, over and over and over again, to, like repurposing their grift into whatever language is currently uh, successful amongst an audience. And uh, another thing that I think is important is that there's a massive conspiracy theory that's been around for forever about the Federal Reserve and any form of currency or anything that can be a weapon against the Federal Reserve is an inherent good because the Federal Reserve is an inherent evil. So, I mean, Q posted that gold shall destroy the Fed and you had a bunch of QAnon people talking about the gold standard coming back and fixing America's economy. So crypto and decentralized currency, anything that disempowers the Fed is a victory. Yes, the whole financial system is controlled by them and they are so ultimately evil that anything that lets you evade their control is itself not only virtuous, but something you must get in on. So that's where a lot of the kinship comes from. Mm. Yeah, this this is amazing. This goes, uh, you know, the connections are a lot deeper, I think, than I appreciated even starting this session. So this is really interesting to listen to. Um, Gap, uh, Gander, something that you said about we're all going to make it, and I know you guys are, you and Sarah are working on... Um, on a paper on this, but it makes me think of med beds, right? It's like, we're all going to make it. We're all going to be financially successful. That mindset is really just the same thing as saying there's going to be this great technology and we're, we're all going to be healed, right? It's kind of like um, they sort of go hand in hand, you know, if you think about it that way. If you want to know how good, how good med beds are, uh, JFK, who'd be like 105 now and uh, famously was shot in the head, is uh, still around and still spry uh, thanks to med beds. That's how good the med beds are. Were they around in 63? Is that the theory? Uh, so it seems. So it seems from the JFK Senior Libs folks. Sarah's waving. Sarah, are you waving? Or are you um. <laughs> I'm I'm just trying to praise all the uh, the, the wonderful um, takes <laughs> okay. there from from poker, but uh, you know, I mean, yeah, I'm glad that you brought up 
Nassara and Gesara and all that, you know, obviously um, there's a lot of overlap with that. Um, and I will just mention uh, in terms of what I'm seeing in the convoy uh, chats and uh, what I've been hearing in the convoy um, live chats is that people are being told to invest in gold. Uh, that's another pretty common narrative. Um, people yesterday in the live chat, like the audio chat, were referring to the current currency as, uh, I think, fake money. Um, so there's kind of already this kind of sovereign citizen overlap, you know, where they, you know, maybe they don't really abide by what, you know, they currently uh, believe to be, you know, the, the fake laws of fake America or whatever. Um, but then I think that what happened yesterday uh, after the announcement of the Emergencies Act in Canada is that people in the chat today are telling people, uh, you know, you better go and take your money out of out of the bank because, you know, they're going to freeze your account. Um, and I think that I, I do wonder if that's going to make, you know, the idea of crypto even more attractive to um, people who support these convoys um, because it's, you know, one less thing, I guess, that the big banks can get their uh, hands on and um i mean in the chats themselves it is just absolutely saturated with uh crypto spam and some people are all about it and some people are not about it so that's been interesting to watch yeah yes um the crypto spam is truly constant i know she just said absolutely saturated but whatever you're imagining please crank it up three or four notches. It is a true drumbeat, which may speak a little bit to what Laura mentioned about, you know, AstroTurf. Sorry, I, please knock me upside the head, Laura, if I'm representing ah, No, wrong, you're but... spot on so far. Oh, then actually, why don't I stop then and let you just kind of take it away in terms of the AstroTurfing crypto and, you know, the current convoy stuff. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Um, one of the things I think that uh, I'm going to refocus attention on here is um, back to the idea of language as a, 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 and its various uses. I'm going to use the metaphor tool. Language is very much a tool to get things done. And uh, what I found uh, when I pulled Twitter data uh, in the QAnon space was, again, evidence of clear digital astroturfing, unnatural activity, non-organic. And we can go into details there later if anybody wants. but. You know, very clear, I had a, a peer-reviewed paper that's been accepted. Um, and uh, as far as uh, language being a tool, I think we're dancing around the, the deception aspect, right? So uh, there, to the extent that I clearly showed, you know, with my colleagues that uh, there is, uh, there, there has been ongoing for some time uh, an effort to really spew propaganda on the internet including in, in QAnon, so it is not organic, just want to repeat that, uh, clear evidence from, from, from the data. Um, so, you know, that goes to, to the deception aspect, and here is where I'm, I'm going with this. Um, I think scholars and, uh, you know, policymakers just, and researchers even here in this space, I think we tend to dance around um, the deception aspect. Uh, in part, it's a little bit out of our comfort zone to the extent that uh, there's only recently within the last couple of years been some theoretical development around organized persuasive communication. So I wanna give a shout out uh, to, and recommend a paper by Bakir et al, 2019 in Critical Sociology. Uh, so this is a 2019 paper that really did some theoretical development around 
the convergence of PR, uh, propaganda, and uh, and uh, promotional culture. For example, you know, salesmanship in public life. So there are lots of different, um, you know, different areas of of study that come to play when you're thinking about something as complex and multifaceted as QAnon, where uh, persuasion uh, is is one uh, one goal that people can use language for, and uh, and you know we can kind of come back to this term propaganda, but organized persuasive communication, organized persuasive communication, is something that is part of our society uh, at large. It is essential to the exercise of power at the national and global level, and it's been extensively studied by scholars of public relations, promotional culture, and propaganda, but um, there's a lot of confusion and there's conceptual limitations within any one of these fields. Um, and, and this is where Bakir et al. had the, um, the insight to point out, first of all, that these, these uh, to the extent that these ideas are developed in, in PR, in propaganda studies, or in, you know, kind of, you know, promotional culture at large, um, they show minimal conceptual development concerning, I'm, I'm reading right now from the abstract because I want to get this just right. It's really worth it, worth your time if you're, you know, uh, if you're, if you're going to, if you want to geek out, geek out on something on these topics. Uh, minimal conceptual development concerning manipulative, organized, persuasive communication, wait for it, involving deception, incentivization, and coercion. So as a consequence, Bakir et al. say, manipulative, propagandistic, organized, persuasive communication within liberal democracies is a blind spot. And they uh, delve into these three tenets of deception, incentivization and coercion as uh, really um, uh, you know, things that we can, uh, can uh, dig into to better understand, I think, um, how some people, maybe with some kind of a motivation to promote crypto, you know, uh, create some chaos, who knows, um, uh, are, are trying to use these new tech tools toward breaking society through deception, incentivization, and coercion. No, I think that's that's really good. I mean, that's been one of my long-standing frustrations with the way that crypto gets covered by a lot of journalists is that they will fail to consider that people are just lying to them. Uh, and I saw that a lot. And even in small ways where, um, you know, crypto in particular, tech in, in broadly as well, will take credit for things that they've like thought up of as conceptual futures and just pretend that it's like all, that they've already done it, that they've already achieved it. But in terms of like misdirection and um, like almost like misinformation, I've actually got a really good like uh, rubber meets the road example of what Professor Dilly's talking about, which is is market cap which is a thing you've probably heard about, but the way that it'll be utilized is they'll talk about, so th if you're not familiar with it, the basic math of market cap is that it's like, okay, you've got 10,000 widgets. The last person to buy a widget bought it for 50 bucks. So the market cap of widgets is 10,000 times 50. So it's $500,000 is the market cap of widgets. And this is the math that they'll use to just come up with these absolutely like, tr truly like, divorced from reality numbers so the the squid game scam that in 
had a market cap of like three trillion dollars uh immediately before it went to zero and the actual takeaway that the uh that the scammers were able to get away with was about three like a little over three million dollars so you'll see this a lot in the communications within within crypto this this idea of market cap which is used to like take a subject make it so complex that it's just easier to repeat whatever you've been told and inject this narrative in there inject this narrative of of these completely irrational values that it's like oh our coin is worth three trillion dollars and it's like well demonstrably not like that's a completely unrealistic uh unrealistic number but the the way the language is structured makes the truth so difficult to engage with that it's easier to just repeat the the framing that you've been delivered uh, when do we get into tranches and synthetic nfts six months i give it uh can you get selena gomez i'm so sorry I just wondered, you used some terms there that I, I you know, as, as someone who is a, a, you know, pedant sometimes for language, I, I would really be grateful to, to get those uh, definitions. Oh, I was just I was just riffing off the fact that tranches was a terminology used uh, in the housing collapse and, and the big short and uh, those kinds of movies, because uh, it was just a way that Wall Street tried to make everything obtuse and harder to understand that we were uh, layering all of these different mortgages into what were called tranches that they were then being put into the credit default swaps. And the other thing was uh, the synthetic credit default swaps that were uh, uh, like derivatives of the original credit default swap. So I was just riffing off of uh, those uh, terminologies that were in that crisis becoming a part of uh, the crypto NFT crisis down the line. Yeah, and poker, uh if I'm understanding you correctly, based on what Dan is saying about, like, for example, the Squid Game coin, somebody comes out and they have this, well, we've got a market cap of three trillion. And then you kind of like peel back from that and try to collateralize and sell derivative assets from it. Right. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, anything. Uh, and like, and I saw uh, that the uh, Let's Go Brandon coin that they tried to get into NASCAR and the Steve Bannon was peddling uh, had a ridiculous market cap, and then it turned to be absolutely worthless right afterwards. Also, so this is this is continuous. <laughs> yeah. Um, can I take a moment to talk about um, commercially motivated lying behavior, like in the disinfo space, because. I just read a really awesome. fascinating paper. I'd love to. Okay. So I hope so. Yes, do it. Yes. All right. They had a really good paper that just came out, or a couple weeks ago, um, from the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, and it was written by Elise Thomas. And she tracks the activities of just one Vietnamese um, clickbait farm, and it promotes QAnon, because, you know, on Facebook, this gets great engagement. And she's able to demonstrate that per month, just the one of its many QAnon-related activity is clearing 1800 bucks. Well, the average income in the region where it's run out of is 180 bucks a month. And again, this is just one out of several. And her point here was, you know, not, oh, this one thing is 
having a huge impact on the information ecosystem. It's not. It's relatively small potatoes. The point is that where the money is, the content farms will follow, and that we could be in the early stages of um, something similar to ransomware, where back in the day, oh, it was state-run agencies. You know, it was state-run or state actors mostly doing ransomware, and people thought that was the full scope of the problem. But then the commercially motivated ransomware actors came on like a tsunami. And her prediction is that we're going to be looking back, you know, two or three years from now, being like, oh my god, it got so much worse. Now there are all of these smaller channels, which would be, you know, the individual clickbait places, pumping out so much information that's moved away from, um, you know, the influences we could reliably track and view as the wellsprings of the movement. No, wait, that last part is not a fair summary of her work. You should go back and read it. I think I unconsciously interjected something to it. But the point is, it was fascinating. Her hypothesis was plausible. And more than that, it immediately made me go, oh, wow, we, like, as a community of analysts, we have completely been neglecting these little, you know, clickbait operations with terrible English that rip off all these stories. But they may have just as much reach, maybe more, in the wake of the great Facebook bans than many of the, you know, mid-tier influencers we spend a ton of time thinking and talking about. Mm -hmm. yeah, sounds like a recommendation. I'm not familiar with the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, but that certainly sounds very much uh, in line with language and communication topics. Oh, yeah, that major. That's ISD is out of London origins. Is that right? Uh, yes, although they are worldwide and they recently posted a couple jobs that may or may not be open. So if you are here and you're like, how do I break into the space? Go to ISD Global, apply. Everyone who is speaking and most of the people who are listening really like you're all nerdy enough to do it. <laughs> oh man, I hope he's talking about me. Um, you too, yeah. <laughs> that's that's great. Thank you for that. Um, so I want to wrap. I, I want to do one more me question about language specifically, and then I want to open it up for some comments. We can go in a while, and um, I think it'd be good to open up. But kind of. My, my last point on language would be something like this in terms of the interaction between the two worlds. You've got um, language used as a tool within the group. You've got language used as a tool so, for outgroups. And each of these groups is sort of an outgroup to the other, right? There's a lot of crossover now and you're seeing more and more of that. But for example, in the conspiracy theory world, in the Q world, you use language, different language than the in-group language, but you use language to, black, to red pill people, right? You have certain, there's a red pill guide. There's kind of a way that you do this. There's a way that you um, ask kind of leading questions and, you know, make them engage their conspiratorial mindset. And then you can encourage that and tell them what searches to run. And then that will inexorably kind of lead them down. There's, there's a way to do this, right? And it's all, you know, the weaponization of language. Um, similarly, uh, people who are invested in crypto, especially the ones who own the means of production, if you will, behind crypto, have, uh, have a similar approach to getting people to buy in, right? And saying things like to the moon, and we're all going to make it and oh, that guy's not going to make it, you know, using ridicule to kind of, um, you know, look at kind of direct attention at people who, who aren't bought in and like, oh, you're going to regret it if you don't. It's early now. The use cases will come and everybody who who doesn't get it now is really going to regret it. But I guess my question here that I want to direct to the panel is these are now getting directed at, at each other and which one kind of is dominant, if we can even say that, right? Is it that the conspiracy theory 
folks are radicalizing people out of the crypto world because of the of the language and similar mindsets and similar anti-federal reserve or anti-government sentiments that kind of thing to bring them in and like lead them down the rabbit hole or is the dominant thing that's happening right now uh crypto seeing that there's this mindset in existence that really resonates they go in with the crypto language and and package it in a slightly different way but they reach a whole larger set of people bringing them over to buy into crypto buy into nfts whatever it is get really excited about web3 and all of that so th this is like at a theoretical level there's no way to really quantify this but i'm curious what people think um well i'll say that i've seen you know a number of predictions from people who are familiar um with kind of the path of, of web-based radicalization uh that maybe down the line if people do invest and you know things like all crypto but nfts in particular i think that you know we're kind of been talking about lately um that if they do invest and then it ends up being you know not working out in their favor and you know they end up uh, being kind of disillusioned by all that um any kind of financial catastrophe is a really good way to um be radicalized into extremist communities and it's uh you know if you are looking for vulnerable people that might be a place for people to look um when they are trying to actively indoctrinate others so obviously you know we don't know that that is going to happen yet but i know that that has been uh, a concern of you know many of us who see people get into really traumatic or really bad situations in their personal or financial life um, only to end up, you know, believing in things like QAnon because it provides an answer and a solution. Sarah is absolutely right. Um, I mean, I would say what I see more than anything is I see crypto um, being predatory towards the conspiracy community because <laughs> because the entire point is to convince people to buy in and there is this community that is already buying you know gold gold plated coins made in uh, made overseas thinking that they're going to replace the you know the dollar um and so most of the interaction between the two communities that i am currently seeing um i see crypto um being very predatory towards the conspiracy community. And I see the conspiracy community clearly not really understanding what crypto is. This is a point that was made earlier, that there's all this sort of anti-federal reserve and there's all this anti-fiat currency stuff. But I don't, it's weird to see a space in which there are people who have been pushing gold you know, for as long as I can remember, you know, the you know, the sort of doomsday gold bugs. Uh, and then this same community uh, is preparing for the apocalypse, talking about cryptocurrency. And it's like, can you name me something that isn't certainly not going to survive the apocalypse? And it's cryptocurrency. Um, <laughs> there is there is no crypto on the other side of a global solar flash apocalypse. Um, but what I do see is that the the idea that crypto is getting big. I don't think the crypto community is pushing QAnon and other conspiracy believers to become more radical. I think that in an attempt to 
place cryptocurrency into their existing belief structure, they are using the emergence and popularity and success of cryptocurrency to reinforce things they already believe are coming soon, TMCR. Um, that crypto is evidence that these things they already believe are about to happen to the global, you know, the global uh, economic structure, uh, the global financial industry is all really going to happen. And it's, they've incorporated crypto part of it. That I don't see that coming from crypto pushers. I see that among people who already believe in the conspiracy and have now been introduced to crypto and are now weaving the mythology of cryptocurrency into their own conspiracy mindset. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with anything that uh, anyone else has said there. I think I would just I'm I'm personally probably even more cynical and extreme about it. Um, I don't necessarily think that this is recruitment as much as it's just uh, uh you know, co-syncretism, um, that the two are, you know, the, the two crypto and Q are co-parasitic things that have grown out of the same soil of, of cultural rot that we have allowed to generate in our society through, you know, wage stagnation, dismantling workers' rights, creating desperate people. Um, and this is like that, that the language in bitcoin back in 2009 2010 was already deeply conspiratorial it was already you know deeply anti-semitic conspiracies were rampant um it was already growing out of like you know sound money um uh talk and all of this like a lot of the same root stuff that has uh mutate like perpetrated into uh, QAnon so this is really just a reconvergence of the very specific like mechanics of these two pools of what are ultimately um, conspiracy modes of thought yeah so I guess that's my downer way of saying that, you know, I just wanted to come back as someone said, you know, they're not recruiting. They're the same thing. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead, Laura. Someone said uh, that, uh, that, that within this QAnon propaganda space that uh, crypto, if I, if I understood correctly, crypto is, is really predatory. Right. And, and that's consistent with the patterns that, I and my colleagues saw in the data on Twitter, which was pushing QAnon and also pushing crypto. And again, we found evidence of digital astroturfing, which is unnatural activity, uh, which is pushing this propaganda at grand scale. Um, so I, I just wanted to point out and ask the other speakers too, you know, uh, are, you, are you aware of, of, uh, of any link with John McAfee course, this, uh, you know, big crypto uh, pusher, and, and uh, uh, he's been placed in emails with QAnon mega spreader Robert David Steele, as well as Thomas Schoenberger. Um, does this uh, uh, make any connections for you, spark any hypotheses, and uh, um, does it go further to, to uh, support the hypothesis that, uh, that crypto is being deliberately seeded here? 
Um, the biggest nexus with McAfee and QAnon, honestly, is that the Q people just went nuts with, you know, all of the bullshit when McAfee died. Um, they had intense, joyous discussions spanning a shockingly long time. Because, you know, usually the QAnon news cycle is pretty rapid. It, it fires and it's over, but they were big into um, McAfee's death and the idea of a oh my gosh, I'm a dead man switch. There we go, that's the term. Of a dead man switch that would secretly reveal all the content, you know, the ultimate truth of QAnon, blah, blah. Um, but as far as the kind of, hmm, as far as I guess the question of aggressive, you know, aggressive astroturfing of QAnon, the problem I have is like not, like everyone has seen, right, some inorganic activity pushing QAnon. Like it is empirically true that that exists. The question has always been reach and efficacy because I forget who it is, possibly someone in the chat pointed out that like for the few times that we're able to actually assess the reach of those messages, it's such like the total reach of all the ones that we know about conclusively is less than one long thread by Praying Medic, one of the most famous QAnon influencers. And so the question has always been a kind of Like, it exists, but is it a speck of dirt, or is it a smudge, or is it, in fact, a thin coat of dirt all along the entire floor? Well, I think we can rule out the latter. The floor is only dirty in part of the... This is a terrible analogy. Oh, my God, why, am I, why don't I do this? Um, but I guess... In fact, I'm going to stop talking now and let someone make a better point more coherently. Okay, goodbye. <laughs> um, no worries. I, I think what uh, I think what was getting at there was the, the the question about the like so there's undeniable astroturfing everybody's seen it everybody's seen the QAnon astroturfing everybody's seen the crypto astroturfing everybody's especially seen the crypto astroturfing my God the bots, um, oh, the bots. and but then there's the question of like what's the payoff there like what is the actual efficacy of that because you know I I think it just kind of comes down to the fact that like mechanized astroturfing is so low effort that it doesn't like it can be deeply ineffective and still not be so ineffective as to discourage someone from uh, from actually engaging with it or from from act like not engaging with it from from doing it uh yeah Dan, mentioned the bots i and and talking about astroturfing it makes me think of something in your video where it was you know, um, they would go around Bitcoin, you know, pushers would go around and say like, hey, can you just slap this sticker on your cash register? Right. As like and this, the point wasn't to get an individual person necessarily to go and buy Bitcoin. It was just to kind of create the impression that Bitcoin is everywhere, that Bitcoin is inevitable. Right. And that was a really low cost way for them to do that. Right. Yeah. Regardless of how effective it actually was, because it's like, but, all right, you know, it's it's a five cent sticker, like whatever. Yeah. So the same as bots, right? It's like, why not just set up a bot and it'll get suspended after a couple of days. But in the meantime, you kind of like, I don't know. I don't get the, the theory of let's annoy the crap out of everybody. And, <laughs> and well, then and it will just accept that nothing can stop what is coming. To, um, yeah. To that, right. I would actually point to like the evangelical, like n not like lower e evangelical sort of uh, strains of thought that run through these types of communities, which is that doing like 
that promoting the thing, that talking about it constantly, that like saturating uh, communications with the message is in in itself, in and of itself, a a moral good um, that you know makes it very easy to then like even if your bots that you're running are operating at a loss, it's it's still like spiritually the correct thing to do. Right, because you're you're continuing to keep. I, I it just want to. In the conversation. Oh, go ahead, Professor. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to uh, go back to a point that was made. Um, that that uh, the, the claim was that, that that it's widely known. Somehow, I, I I heard an implicit claim that it's widely known that there is astroturfing within QAnon propaganda on social media, and I would dispute that in part. Uh, you know, because we've certainly seen that in the discourse around QAnon in the media for a long time, in the narrative of, of some journalists, that uh, that this, this idea that QAnon was grassroots, that it was just a really, you know, people were, you know, uh, out on COVID or, you know, just uh, um, on social media and that it just caught on. That is uh, not supported by the data that we got from Twitter social media network analysis. Um, instead, what we have to look at is the idea that there that uh, some of this propaganda, at least some of it, is being deliberately pushed, where you know crypto is being seeded. And to the extent that one might ask, well, who's responsible? Uh, we have to ask the question about very resourced individuals. Let's look at the billionaires. Let's look at McAfee. You know, let's look at Peter. But Thiel. why did it and why what, did it have to be billionaires yeah, when I it cost so much? What your Sorry. thought on, it, on that is. Oh, no, sorry, I interrupted. That no, was rude of me. Continue. I'm, I'm uh, really just wanting to redirect. I, I wanted to uh, point out, first of all, that, that we have evidence now from quantitative analysis that QAnon on Twitter, uh, at least, was not, uh, not organic. Uh, uh, there was a significant part of it that was uh, digitally astroturf propaganda, um, where this, uh, you know, the language that we saw in the data um, it alluded considerably to, to crypto, and, and it was very confusing, I think, to me as, as the head of this research team to, to see that initially. Um, but we, we certainly have a lot of conspiracy theories that were, you know, present in people's mind uh, uh, for some time in, in certain spaces. But who's pushing the propaganda, right? If, if we look at people that have considerable wealth or entities with considerable resources, I think we have to... Um, you know, look at those as, as some of the causal roles for this. But the end, but the barrier to entry for this, so the barrier to entry, as I think Dan was saying earlier, is exceptionally low. The cost of writing and running a bot is, I mean, it's not zero, but it's basically fire and forget, especially if you are willing to just have an unsophisticated, you know, network of bots pumping out unsophisticated, unsophisticated propaganda. So... And I just want to clarify too. You have to start with billionaires. Okay, uh, I just want to clarify too that uh, we didn't. Uh, one of the one of the things that the uh, disinformation literature on on uh, computational propaganda is showing uh, is is really a gap. There has been so much focus on bots. Um, there's been less focus on human actors. But at least from the Internet Research Agency, which you know was a real thing. Uh, which is kind of dissolved and, you know, morphed into something else that we don't really know what it is because, you know, these actors are getting better at hiding themselves. But there were human actors behind the keyboard. 
And when you see some of these, uh, you know, very influential accounts like Vincent Cripp 46 or, you know, um, many others that I could name, many that you're probably familiar with, you know, there are human actors behind those keyboards. Vincent Cripp 46 tweeted out in Russian uh, one time uh, on August 13, 2020. And, uh, and, you know, there are human actors that came to uh, the aid and the re replies to this individual and started pointing out, oh, you're in Russian mode. So I, I think we have to really take seriously that there are human actors, and, and again, this is a, a gap in the research literature. There's been so much focus on bots, but there are, are actual humans, in, in many cases, running these influencer accounts pushing the propaganda. So this is, oh, oh, Liz, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, this is actually why I, I asked to speak, was to kind of make the point that she was talking about. Uh, Dan could probably speak to this probably in more depth than I can. Um, but I, I watch these coins kind of overtake uh, the community, the commentator community, the influencer community. What I was struck by was how outside of a conspiracy environment, these worked a lot like, that's what it reminded me of is, you know, I've got to buy out my, or, I, I, you know, I've got to get my uh, bottom line set up so that that I'm out of here and you can watch the worth of some of these coins you know follow that um, but when, as she's talking about there about it being real people there's a lot of um, interesting debate happening on YouTube and around YouTube about exactly that that you have influencers who are coming in and pushing crypto on um, on YouTube to their audiences and, and some of them have massive channels and they are pushing this and they're being being paid to do so. Yeah, I think that 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 kind of personal touch is important. I, I myself, um, I'm from Kansas, so of course I would pay attention to this, but uh, I was served ads here on, on Twitter uh, legitimizing crypto by Coke Industries. So there's definitely that push. I see it. That's all I got. Thanks, Lucy. Thank you. And, great comment. And yeah, and Laura, actually, as we were, and, and others, as we we're talking about bots here and language, it makes me think immediately of, just as a sidebar, it makes me think of the Turing test, right? Is this kind of, here, here's how we evaluate. Love it, we, love it. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I, I've got us. Uh, if we were all at a table in front of microphones uh, and could read each other's body language about when we were going to jump in, uh, I was just uh, saying, yeah, the Turing test is great, and, and maybe you, you can share out what that is. Uh, I can I can back you up if uh, if if anything. If I get it easier. wrong, yes, please do. No, I mean the Turing test is uh, ap you know named after Alan Turing, but the idea is an artificial intelligence chatbot or whatever. Um, the real test of whether they've made it or whatever is if the human on the other side of the transaction on the other on the other screen in the chat doesn't know that they're not human right so can you get to that point and that would be that's kind of like a breakthrough moment um to think about in terms of bots am i getting that right i'm going to also juxtapose the the idea of the eliza project so it goes back to sort of the origins of, of artificial intelligence ai work where uh, where this this was basically you know an implementation of the Turing test where 
um, the idea is, can you fool a human? Can you fool a human into thinking uh, that it's another human uh, on the on the other side of the you know uh, the, the space? And uh, if so, then you know uh, that's that's kind of a, a gold gold standard. Now, one of the things though is with these influencer accounts, the the behaviors are so flexible, um, you know that uh, uh, it, it really seems it, it's highly unlikely. That uh, that for the most influential accounts that they were uh, that they were botted, um, but sure, I mean I think that um, we're coming to a point where the technology is so advanced that we're going to have to worry about not only influencer accounts that are uh, you know um, right now run by humans that are being underappreciated for that um, that role, but but in the future probably also um, automatic AI accounts that that uh, can do some degree of of, of dialogue and and pass themselves off great yeah i think it i i i do, do want to kind of spin off that and stress that i think it's it, uh, thank you professor dilly for sort of pulling it back to that because it is very easy to get into this mindset of like it's like oh it's all just bots and it's like well no it's it's a multimodal system of disinformation of misinformation of astroturfing that it's like there there are bot like bots are one arm of it uh influencer accounts or another uh version of it like astroturfed influencer accounts where it's like multiple identities are being run by like the same people behind the scenes and then you have third party influencers who have been like recruited or are true believers or uh, have just been like bought out um and it's it's this it's a complex ecosystem of information so yeah Awesome. Okay, this is just such a good discussion, and I hate to cut it off in any way. At the same time, I do want to get to some questions, and I had Mitch as I number I one. Go ahead. Just make one quick comment before. Um, if it, if I could just make one quick uh, additional comment, uh, when we when we saw something like January six uh, happen, January six, twenty twenty one with the huge suspension of mass suspension of Twitter accounts. What uh, I was able to bear witness to was the flexibility with which these accounts would get suspended. And then you'd see other accounts jump in and the networks would reassemble so rapidly. The, um, the new accounts, uh, for example, Vincent Crip 46 got, got shot down and there was a really interesting um, a series of like a backup account jumping in and then another account, um, you all remember CryptoCoba was a, a, what was a dormant account that had a JFK profile on it for a while, but it had something like 50,000 followers just sitting at the ready. Um, and, and so the flexibility with which the reconstitution happened, it's, it's a really um, inconceivable that, that those could have been bots, mm -hmm. at least as far as the actual person behind the keyboard controlling the account. Well, no, I mean, you're you're absolutely right, Professor, until uh, until the really serious mass purge um, at the after January 6th, I think the purge itself really happened on January 8th. Um, that was very much the system. If a if an account like incarnated extraterrestrial got banned, then within minutes, an account like Jordan Sather would be like, oh, hey, by the way, this is this is E.T.'s new account. Everybody go follow it. And you know, 35,000 people would follow that account within 10 minutes. 
Um, there definitely used to be, uh, and there still is on, on Telegram, those people are all still very tight. Um, but there's definitely a, a behind the scenes communication. They're in touch with one another. They're friends uh, after a certain fashion. Um, and it wasn't until Twitter, you know, in the course of one evening, Twitter banned 180,000 accounts and suddenly they couldn't just jump back on and say, oh, this is ET's new account. Some of them slipped through for sure. But the people who now form the core of the We The Media channel on Telegram, they realized that they had all been banned um, and they couldn't get their audience back, uh, which is why the distress call was sent out um, as the bans were coming down. And instead of this is my new account, share it with everybody, it was just abandon ship, abandon ship. Here is the Telegram channel. Everybody go to Telegram. Yeah. Great. Okay. There's uh there's somebody from the audience who's got the question about or got a comment about bots. So Doug a bug, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh click you through here while we're on that topic and then we'll move to Peter. I, I see you there. I'll get to you next. Doug, are you there? Yes. <clears throat> Hello. Um, I'll, I'll try and keep this uh, brief so you can uh, get to other people. Um, I just wanted to say I'm really thankful that this discussion is sort of happening um, like publicly and stuff because I think it's really valuable as just like a counter argument to conspiracy theories that there's like people spending their time academics studying this stuff that are on the opposite side of QAnon and crypto and like that might help convince some people that they're like BS basically that there's like academics out here talking about this. I think it's really valuable that um, we have this sort of discussion going on. And um, the other thing I wanted to touch on was just the my own philosophy that I've sort of approached these topics with is just trying to be compassionate with people, connecting to people, uh, talking to people with different viewpoints with empathy and just trying to understand like why they fell into this deep, deep uh, pit of like really weird conspiracy theories and like seeing if there's a way I can get them out. And it's like, obviously I'm just one person and I can't do that for like the thousands of followers that a QAnon account has. But um I just wanted to uh, offer that as a topic for discussion about how do we combat misinformation and if we can combat it with like just average people offering empathy and compassion to other people. So, Thanks for that, Doug. Yep. I mentioned at the beginning, um, there's an affiliate to PRISM, which is the uh, Clambake support network for the loved ones of misinformation victims and we've got 600 plus people in there and that's the number one thing we're always talking about is how easy it is through digital means to kind of fall down this rabbit hole and how the only way out you can't 
unradicalize people through those same means. The only way out is for a real connection with family members, people that they know, draw nostalgia. Um, the family member has to be extremely patient and em empathetic. Um, and so there's a lot more work that goes into the pulling out than the going in for sure. Any other comments on Doug's thought there? If not, we will go to Peter. Peter's gonna be added as a speaker. There we go. Um, Peter, for, uh, for a quick question or a comment. You there? Oh, hello. Hi. Hi. Uh, thank you. Thank you for letting me on. Uh, I'll just quickly say um, I'm a, I'm a researcher. I've been doing research on QAnon for the past few years now, um, and uh, I am mostly in more of the academic space. Uh, so I, I am grateful to have the opportunity to talk to a wider audience, especially people who are doing a lot more of the the work that doesn't require you know requests for proposals and uh, grants and all of these kind of crazy other hoops you have to jump through. Um, but I had a few comments to make because I think there's a, a really uh, big question in the QAnon space. Um, and, but also, I, I guess in the internet space, and too big of a question uh, and an unfair question to pose to people here. Um, but there was some conversation about, you know, authentic individual actors within the QAnon network versus bots um, versus, you know, these, these maybe pay to play um, people who are, who are being pushed and funded, whether it's crypto or it's QAnon, it's any given conspiracy theory. How much influence does money have? How much influence do bots have? And um, you know, is QAnon a grassroots uh, organization, or is it something that's being externally directed? I think these questions are are often largely outstanding. Um, and I'm going to draw some draw on some evidence here uh, from my own work. And also, I, I, I this is the worst way to present information. Um, uh, there was a conference among some uh, more once again academic people um, where we were discussing papers that were in the work. So I'm going to mention those, but of course not give any information because they're still under review. Um, but just some things that I've gleaned from that conference. Um, one great study was done that I think has been replicated on a number of different issues in which they tracked uh, various users' um, exposure to things like QAnon content. And you know, you say there's all these bots that are pushing out QAnon content or conspiracy content, and they track the exposure. They see are people actually clicking on the links, and the answer is they're not. They're not spending more than one second looking at it. They're just scrolling right past it, which really, you know, then calls into question the influence of some of these online content farms, which I think has been pointed out. We saw the same phenomenon occur with Cambridge Analytical uh, Analytica and the idea that. Um, you know, it was supposed to be, whatever they called it, the like psychometrics that they were supposed to be employing to control people's brains. But in reality, many people just scrolled past the advertisements, scrolled past bots, ignored kind of the messaging that was coming to them. And so the overemphasis, I think, sometimes that is placed on some of these large moneyed operations, um, you know, is, is something that uh, is in tension with uh, something that I witnessed a lot in my research. I did an ethnography of QAnon. I interviewed a lot of QAnons. I spent a lot of time you know, uh, uh, a lot of time, as I'm sure many of the people on this call have, uh, just going through kind of their information ecosystem. And two of the most influential people who I talked to, who had, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers, who often got um, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of views on their YouTube videos um, back when QAnon was still on YouTube, they were just like, you know, a couple retirees who really, it was their personal story that they were putting online. Um, it was incredibly informal, and, and these were people who didn't really have any malicious intent beyond, well, I mean, 
okay, they had, I don't want to get into that, the morality of it all, but who, who, who weren't being kind of pushed, um, though they were being pushed in these like interpersonal circles that were discussed before. So I've been rambling for far too long um, and I'll cut myself off here because I could just keep going. But I guess the question I pose is, um, you know, with the contours of virality and exposure and authentic interaction online, authentic influence of the internet, all kind of up in the air, how do we begin to answer the question of what actually is influencing the network? Is it the moneyed powers? Is it the interpersonal interactions? Is it the small time influencers? Is it certain ideologues pushing the narrative? Uh, how, how would we even design a study or an investigation that would that would allow us to see kind of the contours of that network? Um, thank you. So first I wanna say, can we please invite this dude to a later meetup because I desperately wanna hear more about his research. And if we can't, for some reason can't do that, Peter, seriously, please DM me. I want to learn more. Oh, I would um, love to talk. I'm such a big fan. <laughs> thank you. Um, second, I think, like, I'm the world's least qualified person to talk about study design, but I think the ethnographic approach is actually a really, 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 really good starting point um, because we are trying to measure the behavior of people and that requires familiarity with people, familiarity with the subculture they've immersed themselves in. And also, you, you further pointed out that these people don't click, they don't read, they don't dwell, they scroll for the most part. They immerse themselves in it and then absorb the vibes and I just I feel like trying to measure the contents that they are really only briefly interacting with isn't like is obviously relevant but it's somewhat less relevant than the cumulative impact of you know two seconds of this two seconds of that five minutes of a podcast whatever it may be I would tend to agree. I mean, uh, QAnon has often structured itself when you, when you pay attention to how believers talk to one another. Um, I mean, you can get into some Twitter thread, or you used to be able to, they're gone pretty much now. But if you look on Telegram, for example, the same sort of interreactions that we see, interactions, I should say, um, they have a very much, and it's been said before, but they have a very much yes and mentality. Someone comes with their own personal take on something and the person on the other side doesn't say oh no 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 that's not what it is it's it's that jfk has been doing this what they say is oh yeah and jfk has also been working on exactly that thing so they're part of their community building is is very re, they will reinforce they will uh, the same sort of aggressive positivity um that you see in a lot of other online spaces where not disagreeing with one another is one of the kind of cardinal rules of QAnon. That's why whenever there's one of these big blowups between two major QAnon figures, and they happen all the time, but if you delve into the comments when Lynn Wood attacks QAnon John or when Jordan Sather attacks Lynn Wood, you look down into the comments and they are pretty much split 50-50 between people who are pro one or the other and people who are like i don't understand why you guys are fighting we're this you guys shouldn't be fighting we're all we're all patriots mm -hmm. um and and that's a real important bonding activity so i do see that they might be scrolling well we talk about the influence of bots and 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 what i see more than anything is 
I see ideas planted that then get shared after some time has gone on. Um, but everything, because they're in this yes and mentality, almost everything they absorb, even if they absorb it very quickly, gets filed away. They might not turn around and write some huge treatise on something that uh, that they scrolled past in their Twitter feed, but you see the idea might come up the next time they're explaining it to somebody else. Um, they build one another to such an extent that the uh, I agree. The, the looking at the influence web is incredibly complicated, um, and yeah, doing doing ethnographic work is a, absolutely a valid way to approach this uh, because they are more than anything beyond anything else. QAnon is a community, um, or I mean, the, or I should say, the believers in QAnon. I, I'm not going to speak to who might be in the shadows behind what or whatever pulling strings. What I'm talking about is the, the legions, the tens of millions of people who believe in this stuff, um, they've adapted what they have heard to suit what they already believe. Um, and when they share it, they add their own sort of distinctness to it, which becomes part of a much larger conversation. Uh, one thing I was going to bring up about the the group where you said like half the people would be like on Team Lynn and the other half would be like, why are you guys fighting? I've often seen like other QAnon promoters that are not involved in the, the dust up. And they'll be saying things like, oh, guys, guys, this is like kayfabe. They really like each other. These two people having this falling out is some sort of inscrutable plan to draw out bad actors and deep state infiltrators that are in our midst. And uh, this is all going to work out. And when it does, we're going to find out that we're in reality, we're all one big happy family and everything's kumbaya. It's all great. Uh, yeah, I just want to, uh, I'd like to point out that um, for those of you who don't know, I'm currently working on my uh, graduate thesis, uh, which is a rhetorical analysis of, of QAnon uh, channel Instagram comments in the week leading up to the Capitol riots. Um, and, you know, it's important to remember, it's not just influencers of QAnon or QAnon promoters that create the narrative. Um, and I'm sorry if I'm, I'm repeating anything, my audio uh, cut out for a bit, but uh, QAnon is, is heavily based on the fan fiction of what followers create for it. Um, some people call it a fandom. Um, I, I think it's a little bit of, of everything. Um, but I, I see people uh, who have been divided along the Michael Flynn versus Linwood lines doxing each other. Uh, there's true identities behind these people. And I, I, I do think it's it's worrisome to write them off as as anything, uh, you know, but that, like you said, they are communities. Uh, these are real humans. It's not, of course, all real humans. We know that there is some level of, of you know, inauthentic behavior. Um, I've, I've been, I've been, you know, harassed online by, by one of these, these humans, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's a very difficult field to research when a lot of these accounts are deliberately anonymous. They have, you know, Pepe images for their, uh, you know, ad profile pictures. It, it's, it's admittedly difficult to um, figure out who is, is really behind what we're looking at. But as a communication scholar, and a lot of communication scholars uh, agree with me, uh, it's not necessarily, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter 
whether or not it's a troll, whether or not it's a bot, if there is a community being built around it that have mobilized in, in you know, offline, then that's a real community and these are real people. And real people, most importantly, are affected on the other end of, of who believes in QAnon. So that is, uh, that is my take on that then. That's great. And that actually is a point I wanted to hit on at the end, but I'll say it now, which is all this talk about language. We're talking about, you know, that group and this group. Well, we're a group too, and we're a community and we use language and the things that we say matter, right? So like Sarah, I know sometimes you'll post things or Carmel will post things and people, I mean, this has happened to everybody, right? And people will drop in with comments and it'll be like, ah, those people are crazy or, uh, you know, like mental illness on a mass scale. Like, let's do that guys like a it doesn't help anybody and b there are real people behind this like why do we do this so we could be doing language better as a community ourselves i just wanted to say that really quickly uh doug you had your hand up uh, oh do you, do you want to go first oh I, I i just wanted to briefly respond to uh to, to sarah's comment um yeah, there's a lot of fan fiction element to this, and and that involve that's uh, one of the the beauties of this conspiracy theory viewed through the lens of disinformation. Um, you know, as part of it, part of it. Where I'm going to come back to that, fan fiction uh, in, invokes participation, which invokes this idea of QAnon as an alternative reality game. And I know there's been that uh, this has been you know there's been an angle on that. Um, in the QAnon discourse of researchers, but I'm going to take a different angle a little bit right here, which is in the network data um, from Twitter QAnon propaganda that we found, there was a huge overlap between um, uh, the, the accounts that were, um, you know, uh, promoting QAnon and Cicada and ARGs, um, which leads to the issue of, you know, some of the individuals who may have, uh, you know, who there's actually some of them, there's considerable evidence that they were seeding narratives. Um, for example, early, um, you know, the, the Schoenberger, who's already got his feet in Cicada 3301 ARGs, um, you know, was, um, there's a lot of evidence behind the scenes that he was also um, putting, you know, acting to influence YouTubers in the, in the, the truther community, in the truther community, trying to seed those narratives and, and um, and so I think we have to do two things. I think we have to look at the mindsets of people who are conspiratorially minded, who, you know, who may have been influenced by these narratives, but also we need to look at tracing back the origins of the narrative, tracing back the origins of the narrative and, and how, and, and look at its roots specifically in ARGs in a scholarly way and in, in a very uh, nuanced way. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you for that. Um, yeah. I just wanted to comment on, uh, Sarah's comments about, I think it's really uh, sort of brave of her that she sort of um, is putting herself out there on Twitter and sort of interacting with people. I started following her after she went on a podcast on YouTube and talked about her work. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. And that's how I got invited to this thing. And yeah, I think people in general are just really bad at communicating um uh there's a, a youtube channel called contrapoints and she has a youtube video where she talks about cancel culture and she talks about how there's like people in the lgbtq community who like 
got in this internal feud where they like were doxing each other because of a perceived notion that this is all over social media over the the that someone had like said something against another person in that group and it was in the the video was all this this woman contrapoints talking about like how she was attacked by people who are supposed to be in the same demographic as her with the LGBTQT. And it was just really fascinating to me how like easy it is for humans, anyone to just sort of like turn against each other and create conflict. And it's not really justified sometimes and people let their emotions get a hold of them and can just uh, irrationally attack things or irrationally believe in conspiracy theories. So. Great. Yep. Um, I'm not sure who had their hand. Did I say Peter next and then Amanda? Let's do that. And by the way, we're at max speakers. So if I um, unmike you or whatever, it's just because I'm trying to make room for somebody else who's requesting. Uh, thank you. And I, I can, I can uh, hop off too, if that would open up a space for someone else after this comment. Um, I do want to, I want to thank everyone for their, their responses to my question. I think that, um, you know, gave me some clarity and it also leads me to say that I, I want to differentiate and distinguish in the question. Something that I should have made more explicit is that to Sarah's point, um, you know, these are people, the fact that they believe in what they believe and they feel what they feel uh, matters. And that addresses the individual psychological how. And that's, and that's where I've spent a lot of my time in my own research is these interpersonal relationships, this uh, discursive kind of frameworks that structure belief. Um, and I, I, think, I think what um, was being posed to the, to the group, especially by Professor Dilley, was uh, the, the kind of multi-level, the larger how of like the the infrastructure that's in place and i think that infrastructure is where it gets really really complicated to try to look at tracing all of the um you know whether it's bots whether it's influencers uh if it's just uh people and i'll 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 add to that network analysis and say that uh, an interesting thing i saw i found in some of my network analysis of tweets um is and this was um a sample of about three hundred thousand. um you know, this was this was a sample about uh, one million QAnon tweets over the summer of 2020, kind of leading up to the election. Um, is you have a lot of people when they're in their mentions. Uh, if you look at the networks that are constructed by mentions, it's people just um, talking to one another, very few likes, just kind of having conversations, and that's what the network is. It's it's all kind of small QAnons, and some of them revolve around these huge personalities. Donald Trump's Twitter account, which was still around at that time, was one of those cases where you had to remove it from the analysis because so many people would just reply. Um, but it, it granted them great access to one another interpersonally. It gave them access to kind of the community discourse. If you looked at the retweets, it was the same kind of thing. They were often retweeting other QAnon members, um, largely to uh, promote ideas that they found favorable. But then if you looked at the quote tweets, it was a very different story. The quote tweets were, uh, tweets were specifically of um, mostly uh, mainstream media folks, uh, government folks, in which they would be trying to call out the hypocrisy, uh, layer the QAnon narrative onto things such as, you know, a, a tweet from uh, Joe Biden's campaign or a, a, a tweet from, um, you know, the CDC. Um, and while it also appeared in mentions sometimes, uh, sometimes they'd be tweeting directly at Joe Biden saying, hey, you, you idiot, sleepy Joe, whatever it was. Um, but oftentimes it was, you know, they were doing these quote tweets to try to reframe the information that was coming in. 
So in that way, like again, we get to see some of these the interpersonal scale of these networks in which they're not getting a ton of likes or favorites or whatever it is, but they're 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 using these very interpersonal forms of of building out the narrative, uh, the fandom, if you will. Um, and I then I just want to give a, a quick plug. Um, the, uh, what what Doug was talking about gave me um, reminded me of there's this great book um, by uh, a professor who does incredible work, some of the most sophisticated kind of um, uh, social media analysis. Uh, his name's Chris Bale. He's at the Duke University. He has this book out called The Social Media Prism. It's super accessible, not written really in academic jargon ways, and it's just all about kind of identity online. And one thing that he talks about is you have people who are dev devout promoters of of certain right wing or or left wing ideas, who their online lives and their their uh, offline lives don't match up at all um, in ways that are confusing, not in any like, oh, they're putting on a persona or anything, but that there's this 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 tension between uh, those two worlds. And I found that in a lot of QAnon people who I spoke with, you know, they'd be like, oh, I'm not really into that Q into QAnon all that much. I'm just kind of experimenting with it. And then I look at their Twitter account and they were like, we must hang Hillary Clinton. Like, oh, OK. Um, so uh, there's these, it's, it's a great book. It, it, I gave it a gross oversimplification, but I highly recommend it. Thank you. Those are great comments. Thank you. Appreciate that. Amanda? Hey. Um, so I was supposed to be a speaker here, and I'm extremely late. So apologies to everybody. Um, and I think what I was going to say is probably now not really relevant. But if you aren't familiar with me, I spent um, 2021 undercover in the far right. I spent a lot of time in QAnon communities. And I was just going to say what Sarah uh, was saying, you know, the fanfic. Um, and what Dapper was saying about everything, uh, just being like, yes, and is exactly what I would see in real life. Um, you know, we'd be at the hotel bar after an event was over and it's just people, you know, like you, you want to make sure everybody knows all the latest conspiracy theories and you want to be the cool person who has all the latest conspiracy theories. Um, and so that, that is definitely translated, um, into their culture offline as well. That's that. Cool, appreciate that. I think we're gonna do one more. Tanya, I'm gonna turn you you on uh, for microphone here, and mostly because mostly because your profile says you like the Oxford comma, and you know you either like the Oxford comma or, comma or you're wrong. So, <laughs> um, I just wanted to share with you guys. Um, I'm sure y'all have probably been following a little bit the truckers' convoy that's illegally occupying. Um, up in Ottawa. And I've been working on the resistance to that, which has and has been involving infiltrating their spaces. Um, and I've been doing that, you know, all week. So um, I've had a really, really heavy dose of QAnon, um, just trying to like figure out what they're doing so I could report them, you know, get them in trouble, like just mess up their lives try to get them to leave Ottawa, things like that. Like there's just a little resistance going on. Um, but I have to say it's really depressing. Um, you know, these people are living in their own world. They think that people that are vaxxed right now are gonna get HIV from the vaccine. That's in addition to all the other misinformation and disinformation that we already know about, you know, what they think. They see anyone who doesn't, you know, see the world their way as evil, 
Like they literally believe God's on their side. They think they're going to overthrow the government. They think they're going to get all of our representatives, you know, that we elect to resign. And then they're going to establish a committee of people that they just appoint. And then the rest of us in the world have like no say in this. And this is what freedom looks like to them. Like they think it's going to start in Canada and then it's going to spread all over the world. And, you know, they're planning out how they're going to establish a Christian theocracy and make all the other religions illegal. And if you try to confront them on that, you know, because sometimes I do confront them, even though I'm like trying to be, you know, under the radar and stuff so I can not get, you know, caught. Um, you know, still, if you try to confront them and say, hey, you know, what about people that want to be, you know, this other religion? They're like, oh, no, no, no. Those people are just misled. So they think, you know, that once they indoctrinate you, that, you know, of course, everybody's going to agree with them and, and they're just right. So I have to say, you know, after spending a week, like pretty much eating this shit all day long, um, I don't know that there's much hope for these people. I mean, they really see, you know, those of us that are out there trying to put out, you know, scientifically vetted information and facts, they see us as evil. And um, I just, I just, I mean, maybe somebody can give me some hope, but I'm telling you all right now, I don't feel like at this point that there is much hope um, for these people. Well, well, I'll I'll tell you one thing for certain is that uh, any attempt to reach these uh, those sorts of people, it, it's not going to be done in a space that they have created for their community. That is, you're absolutely right to say that you spend some time in the community and you wind up feeling hopeless because the community is created for them, by them, and it is impenetrable to outside critique. Um, it was mentioned earlier uh, tonight that in interpersonal uh, relationships are much more successful in reaching these people because it's true their their online or their community persona is so much more bold and so much more sure and when they are removed from that even temporarily um, they are reachable um, but not usually not by you, not by me. Um, they're reachable by someone that they care about. They're reachable by someone who they haven't decided is the enemy, that they can't depersonalize or dehumanize. Um, it has to be someone that they, or I don't say, I, mean, I say it has to be, but I'm saying it's usually much more successful if it is coming from someone who they care about. Um, so if there's any glimmer of hope that I can offer in, in whether these people are truly lost, um, I have to hedge it and say, it's gonna seem like that to us on the outside um, and to us on the outside, they probably are lost. Um, I'm never gonna convince someone who truly believes God is on their side that maybe they're gonna lose this fight because if you truly believe God is on your side, then anything you decide that is appropriate is therefore the correct decision to have to have made. Um, you know, 
is is it weird to challenge them and say does god really want you to execute all the democrats and if they truly believe that god is on their side the answer is yes that's what god wants the, the god is with us um but outside of those communities when they go home if hopefully they go home um my hope is that there are people in their lives who can try to reach them it's sort of what um it's what you're seeing in the the group that has been holed up in dallas for two months uh, the only hope for some of these people is when they get kicked out of the group because michael protzman doesn't like how they spoke to him in their last live chat and he excommunicates them from the group and that is the moment where i hope their family can step in um because when they are within their community they are unreachable that's that's the point the community was constructed to be impregnable yeah amanda you get your hand up yeah um something that i would hear all of the time um from people within the QAnon community would be you know my kids don't talk to me anymore my son's a doctor and he says that i'm murdering people because i won't get vaccinated um you know just people on the verge of divorce <laughs> who have been married you know over 30 40 years and i don't know like i assume the majority of people who are listening here are researchers or journalists um but you know when you're in those spaces and you're not a threat because you're saying that you believe everything that they believe um like a little bit of those like walls come down and like a lot of this is I mean, a lot of it's like COVID related, right? Like, do you, I mean, a lot of people don't want to hang out with people who aren't vaccinated, you know, and they find it hard to respect that decision and, and whatever, and they cut out family members. And, you know, I think it probably feels like, you know, look at these people, like here, here doing this truck thing. And like, you know, like, obviously, like, they don't care. They don't talk to their families, but every single person I ever talked to cared. And, um, you know, I'm 33 and a lot of the people who go to QAnon events are older than I am. And so I would get a lot of like, you look like, you know, like my daughter's age, like you remind me of my child who does not speak to me. Um, and so, you know, like as hopeless as it, as it feels for you, like it's, I mean, it's such a hostile environment um, because you're intruding on the party basically, because that's really what these events are. They're just big parties, um, you know, like, if you're listening to this because somebody that you care about has been completely lost to conspiracy theories, like that person probably misses you. Um, and so, you know, you, you really are <laughs> the best, the best chance. And if it's, you know, someone close to you and like you, you feel like you're prepared and, and able to help uh, someone, you know, it's super frustrating. And I don't think I can personally do it. You know, I, I spent a year undercover with these people maintaining relationships, uh, texting people, calling people all of the time. And I could do that, but I don't think I could talk someone out of QAnon. Um, but just, I mean, just know, like if it's something that you're like considering doing, if you're considering reaching out to a parent or a sibling or something, like they almost without a doubt think about you a lot and talk about you with their with their QAnon friends and how much they miss you. Because it is a, a common theme across all the people that I met. That's great. Well, I know some other folks have requested and uh, we hope to get some, as many of them in as possible, but um, we're just too far past time. We got to wrap it up and call it there. I just wanted to 
end on a final note. I mean, there's so many things we could have talked about, you know, um, we could have talked about Durham. We could have talked about gazpacho. There's like a lot of different language related things going on this very week that uh, we could have gotten into. Um, but just to back out of it, once again, language being very powerful. This is a technology that bad actors, good actors alike have access to. Um, so my hope is that we can not only better understand what these online communities are saying to one another and what it means, but then reflect on what we as another online community can think more about what can we be doing to put language to work for the anti-misinformation cause. Could we be speaking past each other on some issues? Saw a lot of that today, actually. Um, are we unintentionally or intentionally maybe mirroring the language of the communities we follow? And is that smart? Or is there a danger of cultivating similar toxic mindsets? Um, what do people who are not steeped in our subject matter think of the things that we say, right? Kind of that out-group dynamic and are we actually reaching folks? Um, and how could we maybe reach more people if we get on the same page with definitions of our terminology, make it package it in a more accessible way to the general public who in the end really needs to be reached on, on these issues. So there's like a whole other debate to have there and I, I want to continue on with it at some point. Um, but this was just a really fascinating conversation all around. A huge thanks once again to featured participants. I thought it was tremendous. Um, we'll post an encapsulation thread and uh, we look forward to hearing what you all say and, and tweet about it at us uh, if you're so inclined. And uh, we'll see you when the recap thread is ready, when the recording is ready, we'll put that all together so that it's out there for you. And with that, we're going to call it a night. Thank you so much, folks, and have a good one. Thanks very much. Good night, everybody.